0: and uh, something that I maybe could have said earlier on if if someone is still thinking about getting baptized this evening it's not too late um, it's something that yes we would love to have friends and family here with you to do that um, but uh, please if, if you're just thinking about it you, no one's going to make you do it against your will but if you are interested then come and, and speak to me after the service I would love to just tell you a wee bit more and uh, we, can, we can have that ready for you. You can be baptized tonight if you want. Don't put it off. Um, if you remember in Acts, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, he asked a really important question. What hinders me from getting baptized? What's stopping me? Don't let anything put you off uh, getting baptized if that's something that is in your heart to do. Okay, we're going back to to Luke 11 this morning. Last week, we really started to notice the change of tone in the book of Luke, uh, the new focus in the gospel. We're moving from the miracles to the message of Jesus, from the revelation of Christ to man to the rejection of Christ by man. Because ultimately, this is the greatest offense for people. It's great that you do good things for people. It's great that you're kind but hey, look, we don't like you telling us that we need to be forgiven. We don't like being told that we're sinful. Yes, tell us more about loving one another, but keep the salvation stuff to yourself. That's what really causes offense. It's not the actions of Christians, but very often the message of Christians that offends. Now, last Sunday morning, we covered uh, the bulk of, of chapter 10, and we looked at the encouragement Jesus gave to his disciples as he began to prepare Uh, them for life after his ascension. And he says to him in verse 20 of Acts, uh, in Acts, in Luke 10, that we should rejoice not in the successes of earthly ministries, but in the eternal success of grace, that our names are written in heaven. And we saw then with Mary and Martha that there is nothing wrong with Martha being busy and wanting to serve God and wanting to give God her best. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That should be applauded. That should be wonderful. The issue was that she got distracted in that and she was missing out in spending time with Christ. That's when she struggled because when she got distracted, then she started to get angry and tetchy and bitter towards her sister and towards other people because they weren't helping and they weren't doing enough. And so we finished last Sunday morning by saying, work without worship will lead to worry. Then on Sunday night, we look to see how Luke pulled these things together with the disciples' request to be taught how to pray. And hopefully, if you're there in the service or if you caught up on the podcast, you can see the link between chapter 10 and chapter 11 that if you want to wait upon the Lord, if you want to renew your strength in Him, if you want to sit at the feet of Christ so you can stand for the battles tomorrow, you have to be familiar with the place of prayer and anchoring yourself daily in who He is, our Father who art in heaven. And there is this undertone, though, that comes along when you see these chapters side by side. Um or a secondary issue that's being taught, or at least the reason why these first things are being taught. The enemy is real. In chapter 10, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. There's an enemy out there who will come after you, that will hunt you. There, there is an enemy. I saw Satan fall from the sky like lightning. The enemy is real. He's defeated, but he's still real. And now in chapter 11, the focus again comes round to the enemy. Now, he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. I just love how Luke just this. as a matter of fact, you know, it's like, hey, it's a Tuesday, what else would Jesus be doing? He's casting out demons, that's what he does. But when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and people marveled. It may have been a normal day for Jesus. It may even have become the usual for his disciples, but it was still amazing, and it wasn't a normal day for everyone else. They marveled at the difference Jesus can make in someone's life. I like that. I love that. Here was someone who, who the difference that Christ made was so evident, was so stark. People were amazed. It was almost if, like, I can't believe this is the same guy. I can't believe that you're the guy who, who couldn't talk yesterday who couldn't talk this morning. The difference that Jesus can make in someone's life. I I, I love that. Now, we've dealt with this on many occasions in different messages, in different series. The supernatural is real. The Bible speaks about God, the origin of man, as well as the origin of the devil. And we touched on it last Sunday morning briefly about how Satan fell from heaven and what that all meant. It's nothing to be toyed with. It's certainly nothing to be joked about with. Yes, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. However, I will say that the dark side of the spiritual battle is still very disconcerting. I have spoken to people and talked to people who have been involved in the occult and they have seen real power. They have seen real things happen and it is scary because it is real. That's why when when it comes to Halloween and I'm talking to youth groups and all, and they're saying, "Oh, well, Ouija boards and all those things." No, no, it's not because Christians don't believe that it's real. It's because we believe that it is real. That's why it's dangerous. Satan is powerful. He is more powerful than you are. He is more powerful than I am. He is deadly. He seeks to destroy. He seeks to deceive. And yet he is nothing compared to Christ. Satan is not like God, but just bad. It's not like this cosmic arm wrestle and say, like, oh, it's edging one way, oh now it's edging another way. I wonder who's going to win. Get that image out of your head. That is a, a joke. That is not real. Satan, when we look at the like Job chapter one, Satan comes before God as a subordinate not as an equal. He has to come before the throne of God and ask permission to do anything. He doesn't have the right to do anything without God's approval. Satan can't read your minds. He can't know your dreams. He, he isn't everywhere. He doesn't know the future only God know these things. So yes, the, the devil is more than a match for any one of us. But he is no match for our God. Which is why I say, you know, I, I'm not one who gets tied into rebuking the devil. No, I got a guy for that. All right, I'm not going to wrestle a snake when I got a snake handler right beside me. Why would I do that? Why would I take on a fight that that's too much for me? Whenever there's someone right beside me who's with me all the time, who's never going to leave me, never going to forsake me, and says, "Jeff, I I could do that for you." Oh no no no, it's fine. I'm going to fight him myself. No, if a guy for that, I'll take it to Christ. Some people in the crowd though who saw this. They said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So they saw him do one thing and then they're like, okay, do it again. Do do more, do more. Do this, do this, do this. Oh, they wanted to see what was going on. What we have here is the human enemies of Jesus realizing the reality of his power. Remember, these religious leaders aren't the same ones from before. Last week we saw how he was moving away from Chorazin and Bethsaida and Galilee and heading now down towards Jerusalem. So these religious leaders aren't the same men. They've heard stories from the sticks. They've heard stories by the kind of backward community up in Galilee, but they're like, farmers, idiots, bunch of, they've no education. They're not like us. We're more sophisticated in the south. And yet now they're kind of going, oh, okay, there's something to this now. There, there seems to be something here. And so now they're having to come to terms with it. Now that Jesus is in their sphere, it's undisputable. They saw it, they heard it, and now they have to categorize it. They have to do something with what they've just seen. What's going to be our explanation for this? How do we reason it away without putting merit and worth and value into the claims of Christ? So here's their answer. Must be the devil. He does it by Beelzebub. Let me just take a wee bit of time to explain the the term Beelzebul, but I think it's helpful. Originally, the term Beelzebub comes to us from the Old Testament. You see it in 2 Kings chapter 1. You don't have to turn to it. Let me just very quickly tell you the story. Uh, The king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Ahaziah, uh, falls through part of his roof, uh, and he falls to the ground, and he gets hurt, uh, bad intestinal injuries, to the point where he thinks he's going to die. So he sends men to Ekron, the city of, of uh, Palestine or the Philistine territories uh, down south, because that's where the god of Ekron was worshipped, a Canaanite god um, of the Philistines. And so the king in 2 Kings 1 says, Go inquire of Beelzebub to see if I'm going to live or die. So they're down, and the prophet Elijah hears about it. I love Elijah. He confronts them, and he goes... Uh, What, does Israel not have a king, a God that you could ask? Why why are you going to this? Is there no God in Israel? And so he sends them back to the king, and they go, "Uh, Your Majesty, some random hairy tramp. And that's basically how it describes him in the Bible. Some hairy guy, just out of nowhere, kind of called us out on this. And then he sort of says, describe him. Yeah, hairy. That's Elijah the Tishbite. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Just big hairy, kind of ugly, homeless. That's the prophet. And so what happens is the king sends 50 men down to take Elijah. God calls, fi- uh, Elijah calls fire down from heaven, kills all 50 men. So as the king do, he sends another 50 men. And they're demanding that Elijah comes. Fire comes down from heaven, toast. King sends third group of 50 men. And they're petrified. So, <laughs> Elijah, look, we're not making any demands, but if it's okay with you, could you please come? Because just Don't barbecues. And so Elijah goes. And effectively, spoiler, uh, the king dies in the end because he chose to rely on the power of another god rather than on the God of Israel. So that's Beelzebub, um, idol worship from Ekron. Now, Beelzebub is a linguistic transformation. It comes from two words, Baal or Baal. Zebu. So uh, you have the Old Testament. They worship Baal or Baal. Right, well, that's an Ugaritic term. It's an ancient Semitic language, and it basically is the general word for God, small g. Baal, it was just a generic term for God. And so what you'd have is Baal, which means God, and then the next part of the word would say what they, is, they are God of. So you'd have Baal, son, the son God. Baal, harvest, the harvest god. Baal, fertility. Baal, war. Baal, whatever it happens to be. And it would be the god of that. Zebub means, it depends on on who you go to. There's different translations. Uh, In some contexts, it's translated as lord of the house. Or master of the realms. Some sources also translate it as lord of the dung. Lord of the flies. Um, and so you can see why God, the one true God, is so offended. Oh, Baal above, the Lord of the flies, the fly God, you're going to go to him over me? Are you having a laugh? Are you kidding me right now? The dung God over me. You can understand why he's so offended. I, I kind of get that. And so now, by the time you get to the New Testament era, the term Beelzebub or Baal Zebub has become this notorious name given to the other realm, the demonic realm, the satanic realm, the under heavens. He's the prince of demons. So by the time Jesus is walking the earth, it's this common term that people use to speak of Satan, the devil. They're using it in the saying He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler, the prince, the, the god of the demons. Isn't it amazing that people can take the light of the world and confuse them with the prince of darkness? Two polar opposites, and yet that was the accusation. Side note, First Peter labors in his letter to tell us that we are aliens, we are exiles, we are outsiders here on this earth. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us it should not be abnormal to us when the cultural powers that be revile Christianity, push us to the margins of society, or or, to put it another way, demonize us. Now, I know that's maybe a different sense, but in one there's a lot of overlap in the sense that we're often painted as the bad guys in society now. That the problem in, in Northern Ireland is there's too many religious people, there's too many churches. If they got their nose out of it, society would be a better place. And we're the immoral ones because that helps their narrative, it helps their story, it helps the way that they want to see the world. And so you shouldn't be surprised when unsaved people who are confused by what they see in us react angrily against us. Matthew, Jesus in Matthew tells us this. If they've called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more the members of the house. So there are times when people who stand up for the gospel, who stand up for the sanctity of life, who stand up for the definition of marriage, who stand up for these things, and that salvation can only be found in one person, that is Christ, They'll be called out as being the problem, not the solution. But he, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice that Jesus doesn't turn around and say, Satan can't do that kind of stuff. Satan doesn't have this kind of power. He doesn't use that argument. Rather, he uses logic, perfect logic. All right? So, this happens a lot today. People will see something kind of uh, positive and they say, oh, "That's amazing! That must be God! That has to be God!" And, and I've seen um, things happen where, and there's like even some of the religious channels and religious websites and podcasts. You know, they're almost saying, "If anyone speaks out against this work, they're the devil," because this this has to be from God. Look at these miracles that are happening. Look at these things that are happening. But the Bible warns us about this. In Exodus, we saw how the Pharaoh's sorcerers were able to copy some of the signs that Moses was able to do in front of the king. Remember how uh, even the sorcerers were able to turn their staffs into snakes? They were able to do it. Was that God doing it? No. Or what about bringing it into the New Testament, Paul? Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians the lawless one, the the Antichrist will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill by the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I love that. You ever want to think, oh no, Satan's too powerful? Forget it. Listen to him. Uh, He will uh, bring to nothing by the very appearance of his coming. Jesus walks into the room, boom, it's done. It's already been decided. Darkness has no influence when there is light who brings to nothing by the very appearance of his coming you want to underline that you want to circle that you want to treasure that it says but verse 9 the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders Satan is a deceiver and one of the best things that he does is deceive Christians into thinking that something that he's doing is something that God is really doing And he'll have us chasing after him like the Pied Piper, leading us to destruction. That's why Paul tells the Thessalonians in his first letter, test everything, even my words. Test everything. It's why in 1 John 4, we're told not just to test the man in the pulpit, but to test every spirit to see if they're from God. Why? Cause some of them might not be. And so Jesus' logic then in this instant is, if I'm working for the devil and I'm removing the devil from people and undermining the devil himself, then where there's a civil war going on and a divided house can't stand. I'm wrecking his kingdom. So if I'm doing that, well, I, it's good news for you then. So what you're saying is stupid. It doesn't make any sense. Why would I be undermining Satan's kingdom if I'm working for him? Why would Satan undermine himself? And then he strikes this this decisive blow in verse 19. He says, but if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, what about your guys? What about your guys, your exorcists who claim to be doing all these things? We're doing the same thing and it's the same result. So are they doing it by Beelzebub as well? How can we be doing the same thing from two different sources? Get your story straight. And he's just saying, look, let me get this straight. When they do it, it's God, but when it's me, it's the devil. Come on, you're having a laugh. And so he's just using logic here to kind of tie them up with knots. Now, you ought to know that there were Jewish exorcists at that point. Um, the most famous story is probably in Acts 19. Uh, Paul is working through the, his missionary journeys, and he's in Ephesus. And there's seven men, excuse me, seven brothers. They call themselves the sons of Sceva. And so they're kind of doing their thing. And then they say, okay, Paul's using the name of Jesus. seems to be getting good results. Let's add that to our uh, artillery. Excuse me. So they decide to try it. So they um, find a guy who's demon-possessed. They come up to him and go, we demand in the name of the one who Paul preaches that you are cast out. And the guy turns to him and the demon through and kind of goes, okay, well, look, Jesus I know. Paul I know. Here are you guys. And basically then he just starts to wail on these seven guys. And this one man uh, beats them up and they run from the house. They're naked. They're wounded. It's really embarrassing. And it's just this whole big scene. But that to say, there were people who were exorcists at the time and around for a long time. That was just one example. So Jesus then in verse 20, says, But if I'm doing it by the finger of God, by the power of God, by the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God has come. And he's pointing back to Isaiah 11 that we don't have time to go into. Jesus goes on. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me Scatters. Really powerful verse there, 23. But let's look at the first ones first. The strong man is Satan. The strong man is Satan. That's the context of what we're reading. I've said repeatedly, the enemy is strong, the enemy is powerful. But look, the stronger man is Jesus. Please never forget that. Instead of getting spooked, and that circumstances are spiraling out against you, and it's dark and it's hard and it's scary. Jesus is living inside you, and even if the devil shows up, he is stronger. Martin Luther told a couple of stories, and I'm just going to share the stories. Uh, I don't know how figurative they are or how literal they are, but he claims that the devil showed up in front of him several times. And there's even a story that he threw this inkwell across the room at the devil when he showed up at one point. But after a while, Luther says that I got so used to it that one night he woke up and the devil supposedly appeared to him while he was in bed. And he, apparently, Luther says, I just said, oh, you again, rolled over and went back to sleep. The enemy is strong. But Jesus is the stronger man. Amen? <coughs> That's the point of this. Greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. He who's in the world is strong, but Christ is stronger. So follow the flow here of what Luke's been doing from last Sunday. Serving God is amazing. There are highs that you can see, and it's amazing, and it's exciting, but it's not always like that. It can be difficult sometimes. It can be frustrating sometimes. Martha found that, didn't she? and it can be difficult if we're not anchored in Christ. We need to spend time at the feet of Christ, spend time in the place of prayer. Why? Because the enemy is strong. The enemy is real, and and the difficulties in ministry come from a source that is stronger than us, but Christ is the stronger man, So we anchor ourselves in him. It's not a case of, well, I'm going to try harder to be good. I'm going to try harder to serve. I'm going to try harder to be more disciplined. I'm going to work longer hours. It's not about changing churches and trying to change things up a wee bit and going somewhere else. It's about depending on Christ. It's about the sufficiency of Christ. It's about the faithfulness of Christ. That's what we anchor and root ourselves in. The stronger one will come in and strip the strong man of his methods, strip the strong man of his tricks and his gains. Verse 22, the armor's gone, the spoils are gone, everything that he has built up and and taken for himself, gone. Jesus comes and undoes the work of the devil in our lives. Now, big picture theology here. The binding of the strong man comes in stages. Stages. Yeah, it's partly done, but there's more to go. When Jesus first came to the earth, he was born. He had a three-year ministry, and he started binding the strongman there. And we've talked about the casting out of demons and spirits and all the rest of it, several accounts of that throughout the Gospels. That's when the binding uh, began by Christ. Then on the cross, the death of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ, guaranteed the binding of Satan. Victory in Jesus Christ. Through the cross. He can no longer accuse us before the throne, for we stand before God clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ. The accuser has nothing now to accuse us with. His hands are tied. Paul in Colossians 2 said that Jesus made a spectacle of the spirits uh, in the demon world, made a spectacle triumphing over them in his death at the cross. So he guaranteed the future binding of Satan, the future dismantling of the satanic kingdom. That's the second one. And then the third one will come in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, when in Revelation 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years and then uh, released and then cast into the abyss. That is the final and ultimate binding of Satan. So Satan is, in a sense, bound now, And I know what you're thinking because I was thinking the same. If that's him bound now, boy, he's got an awfully long chain. And I agree with you 100% because it seems like Satan is inspiring a lot of things around us, a lot of atrocities that we could only reasonably assume that is being done because of the deceptions of Satan. And so Satan is bound, but he does seem to have this long chain, and I wish it was shorter. I have prayed for it to be shorter. I've told the Lord this. I'm not telling you anything. I haven't told him already. But he knows what he's doing. And I'll lean not in my own understanding or on my perspective, but I'll trust in the strength of the stronger man. When the unclean spirit has gone out of his person, passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Now, I had a long section here about how that can be interpreted and what the house means and all the different pictures of what it means. Let me boil it down to the most basic essence of it. There is a real spiritual battle. You cannot afford to be neutral in this battle. You're either gathering with Christ or you're scattering. You're either pushing on the the agenda of the kingdom of God or you're allowing the agenda of the kingdom of Satan to, to go on unchecked. You can't be neutral in this. You can't say, I don't want the strong man in my life who would want Satan in my life. But at the same time, I don't want the stronger man. I don't want the, all the rules and regulations. I don't want all the do's and the don'ts. I don't want all those commandments. I don't want it. I'd rather just be friends with everyone. I just want to get on with everyone. I want to make my decisions for my life and do what's best for me. You can't do that when there's a war on. You have to pick a side. One of these two forces will be in control of your house. One of these two forces will be in control of your life. You have to choose one and then take all that comes with that choice. I thought about some of the old World War II posters, you know, careless talk costs lives. There is a war on. Beware of that. Beware that the enemy is working. You can't just say, well, I'm not involved. I'm not engaged in that. The enemy is active where you are be careful. These verses, imagine a scenario where you've got rid of Satan in your life. Maybe you could call it a picture of salvation. But unless you allow Christ to come in and to dwell, you allow that stronger man then to reside, unless you pick the other side, you'll end up worse off. Because what will happen is, and I hear this all the time, People say, you know, Jeff, I tried Christianity, but my life only got worse. Uh, you know, My life doesn't look any different from what it was beforehand. I don't have any different desires. I don't have, it's all the same. And when you start to unravel, it's clear what's happened. They never brought the stronger man in to reside in their lives. And so what happened was the strong man came back to try and claim as much as he could. Grasp this lesson as we finish. I see too many people in my line of work who want to know Christ as Savior but don't want to know him as Lord. And you have this big moment of salvation and I'm happy enough to say, yes, it's genuine, it's real, you, you are saved. But you don't allow Christ to filter into every part of your life. And then the issues that you faced before you got saved are still going to be creeping back in again. You're still going to struggle with addiction. You're still going to struggle with your temper. You're still going to struggle with your jealousy. You're still going to struggle with all those things that were there before in your life. Because you didn't allow the stronger man complete access to the house. Make sure that if Christ is your Savior, then he's also your Lord. So let me ask you this as we finish. Are you a Christian who's still in some chains? Does the strong man still have control of part of your life? Maybe for the younger ones in church this morning, he controls your tongue and the language that you use when you're in school or how you talk to people on social media from the safety behind the screen. Maybe for those who are student age, early 20s. Does he control your lust and how you act with your girlfriend or act with your boyfriend? For the rest of us, those things still apply. But does he control your drinking habits? Does he control what you look at on the internet? You think that nobody else knows, but the strong man has this part of your life. Kind to break free from those chains this morning and enjoy the fullness of freedom in Christ that He wants you to know, but you will not break those chains in your own strength. You cannot do it. You might be able to do it for today, and you might you might be able to, to 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 sort of not allow those chains to drag you down tomorrow. But eventually. Those chains will come back on and you'll feel the full weight of it. Only Christ can break those chains. So you need to bring them before God again and surrender it all to Him. Don't be in that place where you are a Christian and He is Savior, but you're trying to act neutral. You're trying to stay out of the fight. The strong man will have have his way or if you want to go back to even talking to the boys and girls don't be like one of those christians who who puts on the uniform but doesn't want to play the part who doesn't want to fulfill the duties that that uniform demands if christ is in you christ has to be seen in you let's pray Father, thank you for the sheer joy of sitting in your presence with brothers and sisters in this house, this house that's been filled with your praise this morning. Our hearts were tenderized and invigorated by the songs that we sang, and so, Lord, then to hear your truth, the words of Jesus himself, and to apply them to us, um, and to see what they could mean, Lord. we, We thank you for that, Lord, because we know, Lord, that we have faith, and our faith is increased. Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so, Lord, thank you for this chance. For hungry hearts that have made sure that time around your word has been created in their week, Lord, bless them because you said that you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. But it's not easy to hear of the enemy. Lord, we'd rather focus on you. Lord, we'd rather focus on the promises of strength and love and grace and forgiveness. But, Lord, we seek to underestimate the enemy no longer and to desire you, the stronger man in all things. So may you be Lord of our lives. May we be totally surrendered to you, no longer neutral in this battle that is all too real. Amen. Go to ask the musicians to come up. We're going to sing. Yesterday was a special day. The 29th of February, a leap day. We only get one of those every four years. Now, I remember in my primary school, I had friends, twins, who were born on the 29th of February, 1984. And so, technically, while I'm aging badly at 36, these guys only turned nine yesterday, which seems to be great. But as twins, one of them celebrated their birthday on the 28th, and then one of them celebrating their birthday today, on the 1st of March. And so, uh, um, although I was joking, I saw them over Christmas and and I was saying to them, you know, for only looking eight, they look terrible, you know. Um, But there's a lot of strange traditions that come with the leap days from women proposing to their men on leap day, something that apparently goes all the way back to St. Patrick. Who would have thought? Um, But what I didn't know was that, according to that tradition, if the man turns down. His, um, his girlfriend or whoever is making the proposing, they are fined. There's a fine. And in Denmark, the fine tradition is 12 pairs of gloves so that the woman can cover her ringless finger. So there you go. A leap day, an extra day of the year. I don't know how you spent it. Um, birthday parties or uh, making proposals. Um, I should come to think of it. Ruth was away for a fair chunk yesterday. She'd follow up on that. In Joshua 10, we we even read of God literally giving his people an extra day. In verses 12 to 14 of of Joshua 10, the Lord gave Israelites victory over the Amorites by making the sun stand still until they had defeated their enemy. But what's the real reason behind a leap day? It's not about proposing and traditions like that. It's actually corrective. It's to keep our clocks in line with the earth's rotation and around the sun and wherever the specifics are. They reckon that every four years, if we just throw in an extra day, that keeps us right. And I think in June, there's a leap second, which I think they're taking the hand a wee bit with that, but that's what's happening. But it's a reminder that every single day we live our lives on earth, we're just getting slightly out of sync. Every time we, 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 every day we go on, every hour, there's just that little kind of gradually getting out of sync. And every four years, the calendar just makes adjustments and recorrects and brings us back into sync. In one sense, communion does exactly what a leap day is supposed to do. We can spend the week busy in our human nature and we can drift out of sync with God. With so many things going on, we can kind of just collectively build up uh, sort of frustrations and selfishness and and self-centeredness and we get caught up in the undercurrents of our fallen world. But our time around this table is a chance to pause, to stop, to think, reflect, to examine ourselves and fall back in line with right thinking and right priorities and a right standing with God. Even that story in Joshua reminds us that even in the battles in life, we are not sufficient. We need God who gives us exactly what we need. So as you come around the table, whether you used that extra day yesterday wisely or not, whether you gave the reason behind it any thought or not, don't come around this table lightly. Don't just pass off, well, it's just another day around the table, it's just another opportunity, it's just another communion service. Not treat it any differently. But rather, the reason to examine yourself, the, the call to, to, to make sure that we're in our right place is, is important. And there's this tension in coming around the table where we want to invite, we want to bring in, we want all to kind of come around and to celebrate and to feast with God and to celebrate what Christ has done in our lives. But at the same time, don't spoil it with lazy thinking. Don't spoil it with selfish thinking or, or treating it lightly and and. and, and Uh, cheaply but rather examine yourself not so that you might find a reason to exclude yourself or to not take part but rather examine yourself so that you might fall back into sync with God fall back into the center of his will that you may take part and so let's bow our heads let's pray um Robert is going to give thanks for for the bread and uh, George is going to give thanks for the cup. But in between that, let's give thanks. Let's praise God, the stronger man in our lives and rejoice that in him we have victory even over the enemy. Let's pray.